This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this extremely timely session on the war on press freedom and what to do about it. Uh, proudly presented by ABC News. So thank you, uh, Gavin, and your team for your support. Before we begin, I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we stand, the Bunwurrung and the Woiwurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Today, we uh, will. our moderator is Prash Naik of Prash Naik Consulting, who provides pre-publication advice to TV, film and digital producers. Prash is general counsel to the Doc Society and has advised on a number of high-profile films, um, documentary films, including Leaving Neverland, The Great Hat, The Nightcrawlers and Prison for Profit. So you are in great hands with Prash, who I'll hand it over to now. Thanks, everyone. Good morning and welcome to this session on press freedom. Can you hear me? Good. Um, I'm delighted to be joined by a distinguished panel this morning. Uh, to my right, Gavin Morris, Director of News Analysis and Investigations at the ABC. Uh, to his right, Yarabo Mellum, an award-winning writer, director and producer at Illuminate Films. And to her right, Professor Peter Grester, an award-winning former foreign correspondent and now the UNESCO Chair in Journalism and Communication at the University of Queensland. That opening trailer will give you an insight into some of the press freedom issues, both nationally and internationally, that we will be discussing today. There will be an opportunity for questions at the end. Um, delegates have an app and you can actually text through your questions and they'll come directly to me. They're all anonymous if you're feeling shy um, and I'll raise them in the last 15 minutes of the debate. So let's start with the Australian context and where we are today. Australia has been described as the most oppressive of the Western democracies. So says Gillian Triggs, Assistant Secretary General, Assistant High Commissioner of Protection at the UN. Since 9-11, Australia has enacted over 75 counter-terrorism and national security laws, more than any other country in the world. Last year, Australia's ranking in the World Press Freedom Index slipped to 21st position, in a large part to new laws that undermine investigative journalism, including laws around espionage, national security, defamation and suppression orders, some of which we'll touch upon today. However, this deterioration in press freedom didn't just happen overnight, but it was this event in June 2019 that brought the issue sharply into focus and to wider public attention. Tim, could we play the first clip? A former employee of the Australian Tax Office who turned whistleblower last year has spoken out for yeah, the first the time, clip. saying Sorry, he almost wrong died order. from stress in the ordeal that followed. Former ATO former employee of the Australian Tax Office who turned whistleblower last year a raid by the Australian Federal Police is underway at the ABC offices in Sydney over a series of 2017 stories known as the Afghan Files. These AFP officers are heading in to search through files looking for information about just how this story was leaked. Hello, I'm Paul Barry. Welcome to Media Watch and to Australia in 2019, where journalists are pursued by police over stories the government or its agencies want to suppress. And where reporters and whistleblowers have sent a chilling message, we will come after you if you tell the public what it has a right to know. So, who or what triggered the raid? Answer, this 2017 ABC investigation by Dan Oakes and Sam Clark called The Afghan Files. Tonight, 
We reveal serious allegations that Australian soldiers may have committed unlawful killings during Australia's longest war and claims that the death of an unarmed Afghan civilian was covered up. I saw innocent people killed who didn't need to die or deserve to die. Gavin, um, can you talk us through what happened uh, last year, June 19, and the sort of repercussions to date? Well, I think nothing defines our age really in relation to these issues of media freedom than images of armed police coming into a newsroom uh, and effectively, uh, you know, having unfettered access into all of our IT systems to be able to fossick around uh, in a fairly uh, unregulated way, really. Uh, a phishing exercise, they didn't, I think, really know what they were looking for, but, you know, the fact that they were able to have the right to get into our systems, to search around, to look for whatever it is they thought they were looking for, um, I think really defines the age. I mean, it's a bizarre day. I, I, I was sort of in my office and because I was named on the uh, search warrant along with Dan and Sam, and Dan and Sam are based in Melbourne, the, the first call I got was from the lawyer saying, whatever you do, get out of the building um, because, you know, you're named on the warrant and you're the only one that they could potentially arrest. Uh, bizarre kind of state of affairs in a newsroom in 2019 in Australia in a democracy where... You know, there, there has always been a understood bond that journalism is part of our democracy and part of the rights of our citizens to know what's going on in their democracy. The journalists are able to go about their work. Um, so a bizarre set of events, really, that, as I say, really has defined our times in relation to this issue. And, you know, and the only benefit of it that has come to light, really, is the fact that we're now talking about this a lot more than we were. I think we took a lot for granted citizens citizens in the Australian democracy and now we're not going to take it for granted uh, so much because of what you saw on that day. And there's no sense of urgency. This this report originally went out in 2017, is that right? It's almost three years since that report was there and we've still got two journalists who have no clear uh, understanding of whether they're under investigation, whether they're going to be charged, whether they're going to be criminalised for doing their job. And three years down the track, I we, we just can't comprehend the process here, uh, and there's no clarity, it's very opaque, it's completely seemingly down to judgment calls within secret departments of, you know, parts of our administration in, in, in government, in the police force, to determine how this works in, in, in the long run. And um, But right now you've got two journalists sitting out there with families trying to get up about their jobs and their lives with no understanding about whether they, in the end, are going to be charged with a crime. Is there a statute of limitations on this? Um, Do I don't believe there is, actually. I don't believe right. there is. Um, so you could potentially publish something now and in 20 years' time you could be... I think you'd have a legitimate ground for arguing that if it wasn't urgent and it took the police 20 years to okay. investigate you, that perhaps it wasn't higher on their priority, but it's a, it's a totally valid this point. Is, this, is, this is also a really important point because one of the things that's worth highlighting about that story and also the subsequent raid um, on Anika Smethers' time, um, the News Corp journalist was that in, in neither, both cases involved stories um, regarding the security agencies, the, uh, the um, special forces in the case of the ABC story and the Australian Signals Directorate in the case of Annika's story. So technically they were both national security issues, but in neither case has anybody ever said that uh, the ABC or News Corp published information that in any way undermined national security. There were stories about policy and about the actions of, of, of the special forces, but they weren't stories that placed anyone or anything in any danger, but they were stories that were politically embarrassing. 
and this is the key, that this that, that, that the national security legislation is being used to go after sources of stories that are politically embarrassing. And, and I think that's what we need to be mindful of here. And perhaps two crucial facts about those stories and the stories that Annika uh, published as well. One, no one's ever challenged the truthfulness of those stories. And two, no one can deny that they weren't in the public interest. So if you've got true stories that are accurate, that there's no fault with in relation to the contents of them, that are in the public interest and are done through uh, absolutely responsible journalism processes, it's crazy that we're in this situation. Mr. Rebels, a bigger picture here. I mean, the date of these two raids is not coincidental. These are the two largest media organisations in Australia. Isn't there a clear message being sent here by the government that no matter how big or well-resourced you are, we will come after you if you publish stories about unauthorised leaks, irrespective of the public interest? This is to send out a chilling message um, and effectively to criminalise journalists for doing their jobs. Well, it's sort of a, a tactic that you'd see in authoritarian regimes. You go after the big fish, you go after the most visible person, organisation, and all the other smaller fish will... <laughs> not speak up. <laughs> totally, totally. Independents, freelance journalists, young journalists, young filmmakers, if they see the most visible um, organisation in the country getting raided and not being able to fight that, well, it's definitely going to have a chilling effect. Yeah, I feel for many people at a conference like this, you know, where you're often an independent filmmaker, you know, working your guts out to do great journalism or tell great stories, often not backed by a big organisation, well, what, what do you make of that? If you're trying to make a film that's got a really important message at the heart of it and you see these things can happen against News Corp and the ABC, as, as if that's not a deterrent. Isn't there also an issue here that the, the scope of national security now, Peter's view really, is, is defined in such broad uh, terms that it sweeps up virtually everything. Anything that's remotely embarrassing to the government could be yeah, covered as national security. This is, the, this is the problem, that the definitions around national security and terrorism are so loosely drawn that it's very difficult for us as the media, and by us I mean everyone, not on the, on the panel, but also everyone in the room, um, to know where those boundaries really lie. It's very difficult and dangerous for sources to know where those boundaries lie. Um, I mean, a classic example was um, the leaks off Manus and Nauru about the conditions on those islands. And you might recall the law has since has subsequently been changed. But at the time that those, that I think it was The Guardian that was publishing quite a number of stories about the conditions in Manus and Nauru, and they were using sources, um, from, they were using medical workers who were, who were giving that information away. Now, we know that the government used national security legislation, used national security services to go after the sources of those leaks because that was considered, the offshore detention policy system was considered to be a part of, of the security regime, the border force protection regime, which is a national security thing. There was, again, there was nothing in that information that in any way compromised national security. What it was doing was exposing the work of of a government agency in our names, in the names of the of the voters, the people that, that gave them the authority to do that in the first place. And so in a democracy, I'd argue that we have a, a, not just a right, but a responsibility to know about those sorts of things. When a government uses national security to shut that down, a story that's politically embarrassing, again, that's, that's loosening of those definitions in a way that ultimately shuts down the kind of transparency and accountability that we really need. 
Yara, can I come back to you? You you raised a good point about authoritarian um, sort of rule books being applied here in democratic sort of institute societies. Is there not a danger that uh, effectively anything that is reporting against Australians' interests in the broader terms leads a dangerous path towards the sort of legislation that's applied in countries like China, Turkey, Egypt, Peter, as you would be more than familiar, in which national security laws are used to effectively prison journalists. And it sends out a very clear deterrent that if you come anywhere near these areas, you will be serving time in a prison cell. In terms of uh, those countries looking to what's happening Absolutely. in Australia, yeah. oh, I, I mean, for years, every time I've gone overseas and tried to raise a human rights record in a particular country, and I've said, why are you doing this? To a government minister or whoever is in authority there, they'll be like, well, what about Australia? Hmm. Australia's doing some pretty terrible things on XYZ front, and no doubt when Australia is supposed to be leading the way in the Asia-Pacific region when it comes to issues of freedom of expression, press freedom, and its human rights record, other countries are looking to us and seeing what we're doing with journalists. And I actually had journalists from other countries like the Philippines, which has a very poor press freedom record, saying to me, oh, what happened in Australia? Mm, I mean, yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, yeah the knock-on effect is undoubtedly and damaging. And I, I know a few diplomats who can't, for, also, for very obvious reasons, speak publicly about it, Australian diplomats, but they consistently say too that the, 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 the raids and Australia's record on these issues keeps coming up in conversations and makes it very, very difficult for them to hold the line that we traditionally have pushed and that's in, in favour of press freedom and, and human rights more broadly. You take a place like Fiji where for 20 years we've lectured Fiji around their democracy, around the freedom of their press, around all of those sorts of things. Well, the Fijians look at us now and laugh at us and say, well, don't lecture us about democracy and journalism and media freedom uh, when we, we look at police storming through your newsrooms. Well, that's what happens here. Yeah. So what's the problem? And isn't there also an issue here that the legislation has tended to be quite knee-jerk, often a reflection of national or world events, poor scrutiny. And we have to remember here, these weren't driven through just by the government. There was bipartisan support for this. And most of these pieces of legislation have used the kind of fig leaf of protecting the wider public as an excuse to increase the level of, of kind of legislative oversight over these areas. So let me give you one example. I mean, this is for you, Gavin, actually. So the, the Espionage and Foreign Interference Act is just one example, which threatens journalists with lengthy prison sentences for reporting against Australian interests. These are defined very broadly as the Australian national security or political or economic relations with a foreign country. So, for example, in 2013, the ABC and The Guardian published claims, which were sourced from the Edward Snowden files, you remember this, uh, that, the, uh, that Australian had carried out a surveillance operation on the then president of Indonesia. Now, if that story was to run today, you would effectively be subject to potential sanctions and imprisonment of up to 25 years to life. Now, that clearly focuses the mind of journalists and the ABC and whether you would ever publish a story like that. Well, exactly. And where are the lines and where are the boundaries and where is the definition in the laws? For all the laws that we've passed to protect our citizens against the perceived threat of terrorism or whatever other threats we're, we're protecting ourselves from, we're still sort of trying to read the vibe around, you know, it's, it's, it's Dennis Denuto law, uh, you know, legal analysis when it comes to us trying to interpret uh, how the laws interact with our journalism. Uh, so it's it's you know there's still this implied implied freedom of political discussion, but it's not defined anywhere. 
There's nothing in our constitution. The, the laws are opaque. We go to the courts to try and get definition and we're left with uh, opacity. You know, there's just no definition in this area. And so we're left guessing story by story, incident by incident. Uh, and I think for a long time we suspected, well, that's okay because they're never really going to do anything about it. And then police arrive in your newsroom. So, so this is the state we're in. You know, there's no definition in the laws. There are police in our newsrooms uh, for stories that were true and in the public interest. So it's time we all kind of got motivated around this and said the only thing that can help us now, if you want to pass laws and you're passing 70-odd laws to protect us from terrorism, it's time to pass some laws or put some definition into the existing laws that give us clarity. Yeah, can I, if, if you're, we're probably sitting in the audience now, as a filmmaker, thinking, well, I don't deal with national security, so this isn't really my problem. Um, and without being unfair to filmmakers, certainly the filmmakers I work with, most of them would regard themselves as filmmakers first and foremost, and they seldom refer to themselves as journalists. Do you, do you think this is a broader debate than simply national, you know, news and current affairs um, in terms of the landscape as a whole? Well, this is just about, broadly, this is about criminalisation criminalising the release of information and criminal criminalising sources from coming forward with that information and the publication of that information. And journalists, documentarians, filmmakers, we're all basically doing the same thing. It's just packaged a little bit differently. We still need to fact-find. We still need to research. We still need sources who are willing to give us information and we release that information. So... Of course, it applies to all of us. Okay, let's let's move it slightly away from national security to a sort of a broader perspective. And we're going to take two relatively small examples of the kind of legislation that impacts on every individual in this room, whether you are a journalist, a filmmaker, or just an ordinary member of the public. Um, so I'm going to look at two issues. Firstly, the access to metadata. When I talk about metadata, I'm talking about... The, not the content of a communication, but the, the peripheral information around it, account details, internet time dates, sender, recipient, IP addresses, etc. But pieces of a jigsaw that could be put together to identify sources. So, Peter, could you... Um, it's a very wordy piece of legislation. I'm going to call it the Data Retention Act to, to sort of not bore the audience. But it was an, a piece of legislation introduced in 2015... Um, under which telecommunications and ISPs are required to collect and retain user data for two years. And in particular, a, a, a sort of um, framework was invented or designed purportedly to protect journalism called Journalist Information Warrants. Could you just talk us through that? Yeah, okay. So the, the data retention, Metadata Retention Act was the, the introduced, it was sold to us as a piece of national security legislation designed to give the security services and a whole host of government agencies, the tools that they need to intercept terrorist communications. Um, it was described rather blithely as the, 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 the envelope itself, not the contents of an envelope. Um, so it's supposed to make us feel, feel comfortable that the, the, the things that we say to our, our friends and, and the things that are communicated within those messages are, are relatively safe. But as you mentioned, by, by bringing together all of these pieces of information, you can build up an incredibly detailed picture of what somebody is doing, who they're communicating, where they're going, and ultimately what they're thinking and planning. Um, the legislation gives not just the security services, but at least on paper, about 21 government agencies the right to investigate any Australian's metadata without a warrant. 
In fact, we know from recent reports that that number, because other agencies use the, those named agencies as proxies to, to, to lodge these requests for them, the number's closer to 80. We're talking things like local governments who are using requesting metadata to find out whose dog left a poo on the side on the footpath somewhere. Um, and when the media screamed about this and said, listen, that exposes our contacts, the government said, okay, we'll introduce these journalist information warrants. Now, that's supposed to give us some, some, um, some comfort, except that the JIW system is take, takes place completely in secret. We don't know, there are secret magistrates who are appointed especially to hear these. There are secret public interest advocates who we initially assumed were there to argue the case on behalf of the journalists, except they're not allowed to speak to the journalists, they're not allowed to reveal any information about these warrants, they're not allowed to, to, to make any contact at all with the journalists, as opposed to arguing the abstract. And we don't actually know what their definition of the public interest really is. It could be that there is a public interest, they could argue that there is a public interest in maintaining public confidence in government institutions, for example, and therefore these disclosures need to be shut down. The point is that the regime makes it almost impossible, oh, and that's the other thing, we don't know who they define as a journalist. And this is the other problem. Those who are employed by the ABC or News Corp might be considered as journalists. You guys, how many of you consider yourselves to be journalists? But if you don't, there's a fair chance that neither does the authorities. They consider you just as filmmakers and therefore your data is exposed. This is incredibly dangerous because it makes it almost impossible to protect the people that you are communicating with. And as I said, when it boils, when it goes as far as a local council trying to find out, you know, who gave information about some council spending um, or about a council policy, it, that person can be exposed. If you're talking to anybody within government that may be embarrassing to any level of government, their information, those contacts can be exposed. And this is one of the key problems, that the regime is sold to us as a piece of national security, but ultimately what it does is it undermines one of the fundamental elements of our democracy, and that is the kind of transparency and accountability, the free flow of information that we need to, to keep the bastards in power honest as well. So crucially, if you are a journalist, then this system works. Of course, you'll never know if it's happened to you. You'll never know if your records have been searched. But more fundamentally, as Peter was saying, if you're, if you're not categorized as a journalist, if you're an ordinary member of the public, this can happen without any oversight. Your phone records could well have been checked. You'll have no knowledge of that. Um, it'll never be told to you or communicated to you. Um, and in a sense, this process happens in the complete absence of any kind of oversight. Oh. And sorry, just very quickly, does anyone know how many requests were made in a 12-month period for, for, for metadata? Again, remember, this is a piece of national security legislation told that, sold to us as necessary for intercepting major criminal activities and terrorist communications. In the space of 12 months, it was more than 300,000. More than 1,000 a day. There aren't that many journalists in this country. <laughs> no, there are not that. It wasn't just for journalists, though. Right. It was. It was for all. All. It wasn't just JIWs. There are, in fact, very right. limited JIWs. Right. But it, 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 what it does is it explains how how 
how often that information is used. And you can't tell me, in all honesty, that there are that many investigations into major criminal events. What it means is that the government and, and those agencies are exploiting the system to find out stuff about us. Now, you, know, you don't want to get into this kind of this kind of dystopian scenario where we're sort of terrified of Big Brother watching us. But here's the thing. As, a, as an academic, we've also been studying, I've got some, a team of researchers who are looking not just at the laws but also the effect of the laws on the work of journalists in the media. And what we've found, and I'm sure Gavin will back this up, is that sources are drying up because they're terrified that the things that they say, the communications they have with journalists will be exposed even picking up the telephone and calling a journalist exposes you because that phone call is logged. And if uh, and that, that news organisation subsequently publishes information that you had access to, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to make that connection between, between you and that journalist. And I that's mean, the problem. And again, this is not about... There's myself. a sacred bond at the heart of journalism and I, I think at the heart of factual filmmaking as well, which is when someone comes to you with a piece of information and they're putting, they're risking their own reputation or their own livelihoods on the line by sharing that because they think the information is important for the public to know. We've always been able to look at a source in the eye and say, don't worry about it, uh, you know, your secret is safe with me. I will never reveal your identity. I will never reveal the manner in which, which I received this information. We simply can't say that anymore. So the fundamental bond, the fundamental promise at the heart of journalism now is something that I can't promise a source anymore. And so absolutely the sources are drying up. And we, we had one story in particular where the story was about a local council and the local council source that had come to us and said, I've got a story, turned around after the raids and said, I'm not willing to go ahead with this. And we're like, well, it's got nothing to do with the local council. You know, it's in the national security. It's not a, you know, there's no risk to you in this. And they said, well, how can you tell me that? How, how, do, how do I know that in the end there isn't some law or some method or some piece of data searching uh, thing that I don't quite understand that may in the end, whether you promise to keep our conversation secret or not, you actually can't promise me that anymore. So, you know, that now we're looking for all sorts of tactics and techniques and, you know, uh, carrier pigeons and whatever we can find to ensure that messages between sources and journalists can't be search through electronic means. I mean, we, we're sort of going back in time to try and find ways to communicate yeah, because absolutely. journalists can't say to sources, don't worry about it, I've got your back. Yeah, can I come to you on that point? Because it's, it's impossible to leave a data footprint in this day and age. Uh, you, you're doing a possible form of surveillance. Possible not to leave a data footprint. Yeah, possible, yeah not to leave yeah. a data footprint. And you're doing a form of surveillance. But are we talking about going back to the old days of pen and paper? Pen and paper, traditional shoe leather reporting, putting up a PO box for sources to send you information so that you don't want to know who they are because you really cannot protect them. Okay. Like you cannot promise. Like the conversation is now extremely different. Earlier, like you said, you could say to someone, I will protect your identity. Maybe just my editor will know who you are. You can't promise that anymore. There's a great story in the United States. A guy called James Risen, who worked for Fox News, was publishing some intelligence assessments that the North Koreans might possibly be um, see further sanctions as provocation and, and actually increase their testing of nuclear weapons. And it wasn't any great secret. It was commonly recognised by anybody who, who's thought about this stuff as, as, as a likely prospect. But he published some internal memos from the State Department that said that 
their analysts were also concerned about this. Now, James Risen and his, his James Risen's source was pinged because he had gone Risen's entry logs into the uh, State Department had been clocked, and there was a sub there were two two mobile phones that were were tracked using the location data to a coffee shop where these guys had met, and that's how they found the source of of those of that leak, and they then prosecuted the source. Now again. So it involves leaving your phone at home or in your workplace when you're going out to meet someone. Now. Yeah, if, and, and if you drive down the road, then your most the, the, the cell the, towers the, the cell towers will pick up your tracking. Even if you leave the phone at home, your number plate is going to be clocked by the by the um, the traffic cameras. There are all sorts of ways of tracking this stuff, and so it, it's created this kind of regime. And again, let me stress: even if it's never used. It's the chilling effect that this has on our communications with sources that really that, that matters. It, even if it's never used in, in court, the fact is that, that our sources, as Gavin said, are getting very, very nervous. That's a good point to, to, to move towards whistleblowers now because the, 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 the converse of the argument about the criminalisation of journalists is the protection of both whistleblowers and sources. And whistleblowers have very much been in the spotlight in the last 12 months at least. Um, can we just play the next clip here? My employee of the Australian tax office who turned whistleblower last year has spoken out for the first time, saying he almost died from stress in the ordeal that followed. Former ATO debt collector Richard Boyle is facing 66 assorted charges that could see him jailed for 161 years. His crime? To tell the ABC's Four Corners and Fairfax about the ATO's draconian treatment of small businesses. We were essentially ordered and directed to start doing standard garnishes on every case, and I was absolutely shocked. That meant, and I stated, that uh, we may be shutting down the wrong businesses and causing great distress to the community and possibly even pushing people towards suicide that um, needed our compassion. Also being tried, in secret, is the man who leaked the Afghan files, former Defence Department lawyer David McBride. Also facing a secret trial are Canberra lawyer Bernard Caleri and his client, known only as Witness K, who sensationally revealed that Australia bugged East Timor offices in 2004 during negotiations over an oil deal. Caleri, who's facing a two-year jail term, told ABC Radio last week... And as the former Human Rights Commissioner Gillian Trigg said, Australia is now the least observant and the most repressive of the Western democracies. There can be little doubt that the laws currently, um, as on the statute book, are designed to hunt down and punish whistleblowers and warn off any future whistleblowers. One only has to look at examples of Chelsea Manning, Wikipedia, Edward Snowden, The Snowden Files, Chris Wiley, Cambridge Analytica, and more recently, Dr. Lee, um, the doctor who brought the coronavirus epidemic to public attention and recently paid with his life, to realise the value to a democratic society in whistleblowers and exposing corruption and wrongdoing, to which journalists and indeed the authorities would have little insight. Similarly, in Australia, whistleblowers have exposed the false basis upon which Australia has gone to war, police misconduct, the cruel treatment of asylum seekers in immigration centres. But who protects the whistleblowers? Gavin, can I come to you first? Um, we, we saw up there Richard Boyle. Um, this was the ATO whistleblower for a Four Corners and a Fairfax report. 
So let's think about Richard Boyle. I mean, this is not some sort of mischief-making revolutionary uh, who is out there to sort of bring attention to himself for purposes of aggrandizement or anything else. This is a public servant who went through all of the channels within the public service to raise concerns about conduct that was going on within his department and in the end got nowhere, was set aside, was ignored, was, uh, you know, in the end kind of isolated within, within his organisation for calling out what he thought was a very important issue in, in the public's interest. So in the end, and that's what happens with whistleblowers, their first option is usually not to go to the media. It Normally that is the last resort. In the end, Richard Boyle spoke to journalists about this because he thought it was such a serious misjustice that was going on, and, and this is what happens. So, so I think you've got to look at these cases and think, what's the context around this? You know, if this is somebody who is doing this for their own personal benefit, okay, well, let's judge that on what it is. Richard Boyle is the opposite of that. He stood up on behalf of the way our country is administered because he saw wrong going on within a department that would otherwise keep it secret. Uh, this is exactly what our democracy is meant to be about. Citizens speaking up, often as a last resort, because the public interest demands it. Uh, and you, you look at the process that Richard Boyle has gone through. I mean, uh, really influenced by Chris Morris, who is obviously one of the most well-known whistleblowers in Australia, the person that really brought about what became the Banking Royal Commission through speaking up about what was going on inside our financial institutions. And I, I saw Chris uh, speak at something, and he said he can't think of a situation where a whistleblower has not lost everything, or at least risked everything, by speaking up on behalf of their fellow citizens. So these are not people who get anything out of this, who gain anything out of this. These are people like Chris Morris who lost everything because he spoke up with his conscience because he thought it was important. And yet this is now what so often happens to whistleblowers who do so. Does the society in Australia, though, um, undervalue the importance of whistleblowers? I mean, there are so many examples of whistleblowers in Australia that have been left destitute, lost their jobs, families are broken up, suicide. I mean, you, you know, the duty of care around whistleblowers is really non-existent. Um, and Australia isn't alone in this in many respects. There are other countries that adopt a very similar regime. I mean, Yara, in many ways, how, as a filmmaker working with a whistleblower or even a confidential source, what can you do to reassure them that this is the right thing to do in terms of a duty of care owed to a whistleblower? You can't reassure someone that um, you, can, you can't protect them. So, and, you, and you know that they're probably going to lose everything if they do speak out. So it's really up to that particular individual. And I'm, for me, I see so many parallels with... Um, the whistleblower issue in Australia with, for instance, uh, filming with political prisoners in a place like Syria. And you know that if they speak to you and they speak out publicly, that they're probably going to go back into jail, they're probably going to be tortured. But for them, it's more important for them to get the story out than what the repercussions are um, for them afterwards. And I suppose that's going to be the same with whistleblowers. A lot of these people do want to see some sort of change. They see that there's a problem with the system. It's not being fixed. They've tried all of the systems internally to try to get it fixed. They've probably been isolated because of it, demoted, not given opportunities within their job so that they can then be called a disgruntled employee if they do speak out. They lose, like you said, their families, their friends, their social networks, their jobs, everything. And a lot of these people are now 
um, living on the margins of society because there is no support afterwards. The best they can hope for is that freedom and truth wins, but they know they will lose. Just Which is a, 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 is a high price to pay. For a Peter, could I just ask you, sorry, just to cut across you, do you think the inadequacies in the law here are effectively enabling the concealment and perpetuating wrongdoing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, the, the security agencies, um, government agencies, are as vulnerable as, as any one of us to misbehaviour, um, more so because they have power within their control. And we know through millennia of, of human history that when people have power, unless that power is checked and controlled, then it is going to, it's likely to be abused. That doesn't mean that everyone who has it is necessarily going to abuse it, but part of this, one of the systems, one of the checks that we have on the abuse of power is the kind of transparency which has underpinned our democracy made us one of the safest places in the first instance. And I know maybe this is something we'll, we'll come to later, but one of the points I think is really worth recognising is that maintaining that system, maintaining transparency and accountability, keeping press freedom alive, media freedom alive, is actually a national security issue. And because part of one of the things that has made our, play, our country safe and secure is that system of transparency and accountability and free democratic debate. It's not always comfortable for governments. It's not always particularly edifying, but it has underpinned an effective functioning of our society. So when in trying to keep us physically safe by trying to impose, give the authorities these kinds of draconian powers, in the process of doing that, we're actually undermining the very structural elements that have made the, made the system work fundamentally, then actually national security isn't served. It's counterproductive to national security in more, more subtle, complex, long-term ways, yes, in ways that are harder to put your finger on, but I would still argue that that, that is, that's really problematic. And, and, and so I think this is one of the reasons why we need to fight collectively for this, because it does actually matter to, to all of us. Let's let's just move the conversation um, a bit further along here now to... You can't look at Australia and the issue of freedom of expression without looking at the world's context and the international's context. Um, because in a sense, the two go hand in hand. Um, as we said before, um, as a democratic society, uh, many other countries look at us to set an example. And when we don't set an example, they use that as an excuse to kind of replicate the kind of misgivings that are currently uh, underway in this country. There's also another broader issue I'd like to bring in here, which is the whole issue of disinformation and the role of journalists as gatekeepers, particularly in an increasing age when the underfunding of mainstream journalism has resulted in social media becoming one of the predominant forces in the distribution of news, the whole issue about fake news and manipulation. Um, I'd like to introduce the third and final clip here, Tim, which is um, a film that uh, Yara did called The War on Truth. Digital media pioneer Maria Ressa is the founder of online site Rappler. Maria, what is fake news? It is whatever power doesn't like. The president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, says he wants to kill as many people involved with drugs as possible and lists his critics as public enemies. Don't Grappler, an online news site known to be critical of the government, had its license revoked a few weeks ago. The end goal is 
is to silence dissent. When people don't know what is real and what is fake, when facts don't matter, then the voice with the loudest megaphone gains more power. You know, this is the time to fight. This is the time to tell people, here, here's the line. And you have to make sure that our government doesn't cross it, because when it does, we're no longer a democracy. Could you just set the context of that film a little bit for the audience? Because we've already talked about the authoritarian tools used by certain societies against the media. Um, but could you set up the sort of context for us around that film? So Maria Ressa is the editor of Rappler, which I suppose, uh, which in the Philippines is an online news site, I suppose um, a Western equivalent might be BuzzFeed. Um, very popular found its audience online on Facebook and on Twitter and was doing really well um, up until maybe about six months after Duterte got into power when it started to look at some of the policies of the government and in particular the drug war and was critical of it. And then this disinformation campaign just descended on Rappler and on its journalists and on Maria Ressa, who's the head of Rappler. Um, and a part of that involved um, throwing a whole bunch of legal cases against Maria Ressa and against Rappler as well. Um, but Maria kept fighting and she has quite a high international profile. She was a CNN correspondent for quite some time. And so instead of ducking, as she calls it, she spoke out and um, was able to um, create an international campaign against what, is, what was happening to her. But more crucially, what Maria has done, which is extraordinary, is she figured out that what was happening in the Philippines was a um, very coordinated, very organised, disinformation campaign that she was able to actually map the architecture of and figure out exactly what players were involved, how they were doing it, um, and because of it, she has figured out how to stop disinformation campaigns um, and is working actively with social media giants in order to prevent disinformation campaigns from continuing. Now, these disinformation campaigns are quite a common tactic, aren't they, in many ways? I mean. We look at um, Trump's war on the media, the demonization of the media as the, um, the enemy of the people, the, the constant references to fake news. But I think what was an interesting observation I, I picked up in the research for this piece was that Duterte uses viral disinformation, intimidation of the media, presenting the media as the enemy of the people. And this has been copied by populist leaders such as Donald Trump, Bolsonaro in Brazil, and more recently Boris Johnson in the UK. But what's particularly interesting is Duterte's campaign predates these, all these three leaders' election into office. Um, is that therefore not a worrying sign of the so-called democratic leaders effectively using the tactics of authoritarian regimes um, to effectively delegitimize journalism? I think what happened is um, there's been broad recognition now that um, the Philippines was ground zero in the war against disinformation. Cambridge Analytica went there first, tested out everything. <laughs> in the Philippines saw what worked and um, whatever worked there was then applied in other countries around the world and in other campaigns like the Trump election and Brexit. Um, and so I think what Maria 
um, and her story serves to show is that there is this concrete evidence that shows how disinformation campaigns have developed and how authoritarian regimes are using it and it can be then used to uh, undermine democracies in other parts of the world as well. Gavin, Peter, how, how, do, you, how do you tackle this disinformation campaign, particularly when it's being driven by the government? Peter's got more experience in this <laughs> than I do. <laughs> no, look, um, I wish there was an easy answer for that. I just don't, and I think that's one of the reasons why Gavin wimped out on this one. <laughs> um, the problem is that that what this has done is is degrade trust in in, in any institution right across the board. And the problem is, and there was a great quote from the Washington Post, I think, where they said, "What what what's worse, a world in which nobody, in which you don't know who to trust, or a world in which you don't believe anything." And to my mind, that world in which we don't believe anything is actually more, is really, really dangerous because you therefore have no, no capacity to have conversations that are based on, on a common understanding of what the reality is. One of the reasons we've got so many issues over climate denialism is because, um, because of disinformation, because online all information appears to be equal and we know that it's not. One of the reasons that anti-vaxxers also um, have so much traction, because misinformation appears just as valid as solid, rock-solid science, um, and so it's incredibly difficult for us to, to push back. I don't think it's up to us. I think it's up to the social media platforms, yeah. because they're the ones who can fix yeah. the problems. The problem is there. Um, it's of their making. They've allowed the manipulation of algorithms on their sites, which spreads this mis misinformation. They know when that happens. Um, it's something that you can track and stop. Um, and if their corporate bottom line doesn't allow them to um, stop that, the spread of that misinformation because they're making so much money out of you know, these, this platform, then there needs to be legislation that governs it. But, but I think if we haven't thoroughly depressed you all already, uh, I, I think the one sign of hope and light in Maria's story is the way that uh, through evidence, I mean, Facebook and the social media platforms in the Philippines were her enemy. And she has... She calls them her frenemy. Th and now they are. Because yeah. I think what she has done and what she's been successful at doing in a way that has not happened in many other emerging democracies is she's been able to work with some of those big digital platforms and social media players to be able to convince them that this is important in the way they operate in the information ecosystem and they've become much more attentive to the problem and so I don't think the problem is solved in any by any means but I am encouraged by the fact that Maria now actively works with them in partnership she had to build the evidence base but once she built the evidence base they started listening now I've known Maria for a long time she's a friend of mine from CNN and she's a scallywag in many ways which is exactly what the Philippines needed in their information ecosystem but she's not a criminal and for so long, the social media providers in the Philippines and the big digital agencies were absolutely what the government went to first to spread the misinformation. 
and Maria has been able to, over time, convince them that they can be part of the solution. Let's, let's just turn that back to Australia now, because we, we come off the back of criminalisation, the attempts to criminalise Maria, I mean, they're undoubtedly, I mean, she was in the, back in the news this, uh, this week, um, the criminal libel uh, further charges against her. Um, to, our, to our old friend Julian Assange, currently sitting in Belmarsh Prison in the, the UK, currently subject to extradition to the US on espionage charges. Um, the Australian government has been significantly silent in its, its kind of public position. Um, but a, a worrying development, whether you, whether you love or hate Julian Assange, whether you think he's, uh, um, uh, you know, he, he has everything that he, he has his just desserts, whether you consider him a journalist, a whistleblower, whatever, the case sets a very unique precedent. It is the first time that the US Espionage Act has been applied against a journalist. Secondly, also against a non-US citizen. And therefore, it sets up a very interesting perspective, which is, um, if you are a foreign journalist working on US national security issues outside the United States, potentially you are subject to international prosecution by the United States authorities, subject obviously to extradition proceedings. But conversely, can you imagine a situation where you are an American journalist reporting on rules and laws, official secrets in India uh, or China, for example. Um, how do you think the Trump administration would respond to the prosecution of a US journalist on foreign soil? There does appear to be one rule for the Americans and one rule for everyone else. But the Americans do tend to lead the way here and all roads do tend to lead back yeah. to them. In fact, I, I'm going to correct you on one thing, Prash, and that's the fact that um, the Espionage Act hasn't been used against journalists. In fact, and this is something that often surprises people, the Espionage Act was passed in, in 1914 um, to do pretty much what it says on the tin. It was designed to go after spies that were undermining national security, particularly in the days of the First World War. Um, up in, From 1910 and up until 2008, um, sorry, 1914 to 2008, almost, 90, almost 90 years, it, it had been used a total of, I think, about five times. From 2008 up until 2016, and um, it was used more than twice as often as all of the, the previous times combined. The, the numbers are a bit fuzzy because of the, of the way in which you understand the, the act being applied. Of course, anyone who knows recent American history will know that that's Obama that used the act, and in, almost, in most of those cases it was to go after journalists or their sources. Now, I mentioned James Risen, um, the, the, um, the Fox journalist, Fox News journalist who went, who um, got the source from the <coughs> State Department, um, that the Espionage Act was used in his case. So it was Obama that applied it, and what Trump is doing is simply extending it. But what the Obama administration did was they actually considered using the Espionage Act against Julian Assange. Even they, after all of the all of the times that they had used it previously on journalists, decided that going after Assange was a step too far because of the implications that would have on press freedom more broadly. And that's, I think that's, that's crucial here. It's the expansion again of, of the definitions and the use of a law into areas that, that, that have, have been unprecedented until now. I think as much as I admire and respect Barack, uh, President Obama, um, he laid the groundwork for the way in which the law is being used against Assange now. And I think whatever, you, as you mentioned, whatever you think of Assange, the fact is that the way the law is being used, the way the Espionage Act is being used, is really damaging to, 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 to media freedom. Um, and I think that's the thing that we really need to, to concentrate and focus on and, and be aware of.
Well, look, I think my only comment on Julian Assange is, you know, uh, he's still an Australian citizen and surely we still, as a country, stand up for our citizens. So one way or another, right or wrong, whether you like what he's done, whether you don't like what he's done, you know, I, I do think it's interesting in the, in the current co context how he is on his own out there. Um, and as a citizen of Australia, I, I would have thought that at least he is owed support uh, from us as a nation uh, through the process that he's going through. Yara, did you want to add to that? Um, I know of at least one journalist who's in hiding in Australia um, and can't go back to their country because their lawyer has said that um, an Interpol red notice might be issued based on the precedent that the Assange case is, has set um, and now they're in hiding. So I think it's already having ramifications and we need to act really fast in order to not allow this to become a precedent for journalists and filmmakers and people working in this space. I mean, I have, I'm advising on two cases at the moment with foreign whistleblowers, not in this country, but the ramifications here, particularly around Assange, are significant. Mm -hmm. And it's making the two organisations I'm working for really think very, very carefully about what they can and cannot do um, uh, in this kind of current era. Um, well, we've thoroughly depressed you. Let, let's, let's look at the, the positives, if there are any positives, light at the end of the tunnel. Um, what, what can we do and what initiatives are currently underway to try and redress this balance? So there are two key initiatives I'd like to talk about. Um, Gavin, if I could come to you first. Uh, this is the Right to Know Coalition, which you, uh, you may have seen in the trailer which preceded this session. Could you just talk to you very, very briefly the sort of the key headline points? Well, it's really simple. We think there are a, a, a few small changes we could make to, to our existing laws as they stand, which would effectively if not solve the problem, make this problem a lot clearer for everybody working within the system. And these are not big rocket science reforms. Uh, they are you know, inclusion of recognising that journalists have a place in the system, that whistleblowers do have a right to some protections, that uh, you know, some of our laws that have been mangled over the years, like defamation law, uh, could be reformed a little. I mean, we've got lawmakers, we've got many of them, Make some laws, change some laws. It's not that difficult, I don't think. And yet, yet here we all are sort of feeling our way around in the dark trying to work out how to tell stories on behalf of our citizens. A few small reforms to the laws would make all the difference. Peter, can I come to you very quickly? So can we talk through the, your proposal for the Media Freedom well, Act? This is, this is wearing your hat as the director for the Alliance of Journalists' Freedom. Yeah, and I slightly disagree with Gavin because um, we think that um, tweaks to individual pieces of law won't really cut it. One of the laws that was used to go after the ABC and the AFP raids was the Defence Act, and it was a provision prohibiting the receipt or criminalising the receipt of stolen property. Now, we c what they've done is essentially define information as property, and if you think of it in those terms, then, then any unauthorised information from, from government could be considered as stolen property or you're receiving stolen goods. So we don't think that individual tweaks will deal with every single piece of legislation. You certainly can't, the, the Right to Know Coalition certainly isn't appealing for a reform of the Defence Act and, and change, a, a media freedom, a, a provision for media written into receipt of stolen property um, legislation or statutes. What we want is a Media Freedom Act that effectively sets out the very principle of press freedom that establishes it in law. We don't have anything in our legal code, nothing at all, that guarantees press freedom or, or freedom of speech. 
the ABC tried to apply what we do have, which is an implied right of political communication in challenging the search warrant. And they lost, predictably, because um, measuring up an, a vaguely implied right against a very solid law is never going to work. It's never going to hold water. So what we want is a Media Freedom Act that compels, first of all, our legislators to take press freedom into account whenever they are passing new pieces of legislation and also compels the courts to keep to take press freedom into account um, whenever they're dealing with cases that might in some way impact press freedom. We are not saying that you have to give the media unfettered access. There has to be a degree of secrecy. But what we are saying is that that, ne that principle needs to be taken into account because of the absolutely vital role that the media plays in keeping uh, um, our system healthy. It seems to me, and this the issue that uh, Gavin initially raised, that fundamentally we need to better educate the public about their right to know, because at the end of the day, we are acting in the best interest of the public. And I think the difficulty with having a right that's quite ephemeral is how you communicate that ownership to the public. The danger um, is that the, the government said, uh, both the Prime Minister and the Home Affairs Minister, Peter Dutton, have all said that journalists should not be above the law, and we absolutely agree. But this isn't about journalists. This is about the public. The media is, let's think about that term, the media is simply the means by which information flows. It's not about us. It's about maintaining that pipeline of, of, of effect, effective pipeline of information. Um, and if you choke that pipeline off, then you damage our democracy. So it is not about journalists per se. It is not about the media or filmmakers per se. It is about the role that we play in a functioning democracy. And that's why the Right to Know Coalition, that name, the Right to Know, is, I think, the right one. It's a good way of doing it because it places the emphasis on the public um, as voters, as participants in this democracy. There's a really fundamental... It all boils down to this, really, for me in the end. What our lawmakers tell us and what our agencies of government tell us is this is all about protecting us. It's not. It's about protecting them. Yeah. That yeah. is it. That is yeah. what is going on at the moment. They're embarrassed by these stories. They think there are things that should happen inside government that the citizens should not know about. So what we say is don't hold us to a different legal standard but put some protections within the laws that say to the citizens, we've got your back and you have a right to know when these things are being kept secret from you. It's a really simple concept and the more we're able to have that conversation with the public, I think the more hopefully this will resonate. Yeah, what could the industry do in terms of film? And filmmakers, they have the great gift of amazing storytelling. How do you convert what we've been talking about today into a meaningful message that can be communicated to an audience? Oh, you need to make it very personal. It needs to not be this con abstract concept about press freedom and your right to know and um, this is about democracy. It needs to be, you need to know about this and there needs to be these protections because if we didn't have them, we wouldn't have had a, a commission into banking or a royal commission into banking or we wouldn't, you wouldn't know that your small business is being targeted by the ATO um, and these are, it needs to become something that is relevant to the hairdresser living in, you know, the suburbs of Sydney or the mechanic out two hours in a regional area or a farmer um, living in a remote part of Australia. This needs to become, we need to be a, get better at accessing 
this audience and, and getting the message out to these audiences as well. Great, thank you very much. I, I'm now going to um, take some questions. We've got about 12 minutes left. Um, some questions have come through in the app. This is for the panel. Um, if you haven't got an app or haven't access to it, put your hand up and I'll get a microphone to you if need be. Um, so question for the panel. Often media companies think and act as rivals. How closely aligned are rival news and media companies and working together to push back on these developments? With that to you, Gavin. Well, look, the masterstroke of the AFP raids was they raided News Corp and the ABC at the same time. So never has there been a coalition on an issue so united as bringing the ABC and News Corp together on, on this. So, I, I, I mean, I... I I look back and I kind of wonder what the AFP were thinking at the time because had they only raided the ABC, we would be out there on our own, I think. Uh, but this has brought the industry together and uh, quite rightfully all media organisations are united around this and I can't recall a time when I've seen something like that around a public policy issue of which all of the media organisations, no matter which part of the market they represent or which consumers they report their news and information to, whereas one on this one. Is there a danger, though, that you, you reach this kind of um, pinnacle of news coverage, it's very, very much in the public eye, and then it effectively dissipates over time? It, completely. And I think that's what's happened over the summer. You know, we've had this incredible summer of disaster and, and crisis in the country, and, you know, we've got the coronavirus situation that's occupying a lot of our time and energy, quite rightly. Uh, so an issue like this gets tucked under the carpet again, and we all go on worry about something else. So it is very hard to keep this in the public's consciousness. Uh, but to your point, you know, I look back at a story we did on 7.30 last night, you know, dairy farmers taken almost to the point of bankruptcy by an energy company over an unpaid bill, you know, to which they had no understanding of the rules or the regulations or the way the data was being used or anything else. So this is about real people at the heart of our democracy interacting with companies and government agencies and being sent destitute in the case of those two farmers on 7.30 last night. So as many times as we can come back to... That's what it means to be a citizen in our nation, is to be protected by first the laws and then where the laws don't work, the democracy that surrounds them. And uh, somehow we've got to keep having that conversation. Um, we've touched upon this already, but again, this is for the panel as a whole. What practical tips do you have for independent filmmakers looking to protect their sources, accepting that we cannot guarantee protection 100%, but what other tools are available? I mean. Give you examples. Um, a lot of uh, clients, both here and, uh, and overseas, use Dropbox encryption boxes to allow sources to deliver information anonymously. And it leaves you with the inevitable problem of um, the decryption laws, Peter, which we were going to talk about, didn't have time. Uh, but also, you do need to engage with the source. You can't simply allow people to drop information. Um, and often you, are, you, you have to have an engagement with them. Yeah, I'm going to start you off for that and then broaden it out a bit. Uh, I don't know, it's extremely difficult and um, it's, it's really difficult also to not know who your source is because you do want to verify totally. who they are, um, especially as you do have a responsibility to your audiences if you do release information that at, at the very minimum you've done um, all of your due diligence in terms of who they are and, and that they have that sort of authority to give that information to you and that it's come from an area that is trusted. But in the absence of being able to protect a source, I think we have to be a lot more creative in how we verify information. And um, it'll just take longer. It'll just take a lot longer than what we're used to. 
um, to get that information out and to write our stories and to publish our stories and broadcast our stories because um, we are operating in a really difficult environment right now. I mean, I, I have a message to kind of whistleblowers and potential sources out there, really, and it is this. Nothing beats talking to a journalist like a brown paper envelope in the mail. Uh, you don't want to speak up. You don't want to put your name to it. That's okay by us. Just send us what you know. Send us what you have. Uh, we will do the job of doing what journalists do in verifying that information. Or even better, leave a filing cabinet behind in a warehouse and allow <laughs> us uh, access to it. So that we can, uh, you know, fossick around in cabinet files. Uh, but there, there is still the, the essence here that we've got to say to sources and whistleblowers, yes, you've got to be more careful than you ever have. But there are ways of getting information to journalists and filmmakers and documentary makers that you shouldn't be deterred from doing, uh, and the ways to do it you can protect yourself that don't necessarily involve kind of all sorts of high-tech apps and techniques. Uh, brown paper bag in the in the mail, do that. Yeah, this, is a, this is a broader question for the panel, and, and actually a very good one. What responsibility should journalists and filmmakers accept um, for the loss of public trust in the media? Uh, and what are the moral imperatives it suggests for us going forward? Peter, I'll start you with that one. Look, um, this is, again, a really, really complex question. We have, of course, we have a huge responsibility to up our game. We've lost a lot of public trust over the years, particularly in the current digital environment where there's been a kind of scramble for, 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 for eyeballs, and that often means publishing misleading headlines, a lot of clickbait that gets generated. And so collectively as an industry, I think we, we have a huge responsibility to try and uphold those standards, raise those standards. It, it is incredibly difficult in the current environment with the way that, um, the, the way that um, business models are collapsing. But as we've already discussed, it's not just journalists' fault. Um, there has been social media companies, as Yara was saying so articulately, social media companies have helped create this environment, this toxic uh, swamp, where the public has generally lost faith in anything that they read or see online. You know, anybody, any whack job with a, with a crazy conspiracy theory can find information online to confirm their, their beliefs and the chances are the algorithms will keep feeding them stuff to support those, 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 crazy, those crazy ideas. And that means that if the media is publishing something else, and again, let's go back to basic climate change, you know, it doesn't matter how much solid journalism you do, if you're a climate sceptic, you will find a whole trove of stuff out there to confirm your, your, your ideas. And so it's, I, I think it's not, as, again, I'll, I'll just go back to what Yara was saying earlier, it's not just our responsibility, it's the responsibility of the social media companies and of governments to establish a kind of framework that supports good, solid journalism and good, solid public debate. But let me be glass half full man again here because I think the other thing that you're seeing in the contemporary media environment is a return to trusted sources. Uh, and I think there is a hunger out there among many people who say, okay, I got it. There are places now that I'm much more aware I can't trust. So where can I go where I can trust the information I'm provided? And you make a great documentary these days that really tells a story that otherwise might not be told. That can go global in a way that it could never do 
15 or 20 years ago. So we can't lose hope that there aren't really great ways to tell big stories to great audiences. You know, I remember the time when everybody said long-form storytelling was going to be dead and that no one was going to watch documentaries and scheduled television programs and all of these sorts of things. Then along comes a 10-hour documentary about a murder in one small part of America that none of us had ever heard of before. Uh, and suddenly, long-form storytelling in documentary form was the biggest thing going uh, on digital platforms and went global. So big stories told well can still reach a really big audience. And there has definitely been a return to sources that you can trust. And so you're seeing emerging business models commercially around uh, big, new, sure, big media organisations who tell incredible stories, but also around emerging smaller players who are finding ways to, to cut through. I also think you're seeing an interesting development as well, which is um, international media collaboration, strength of arms between different media groups. You look at the Snowden Files, Wikipedia, you look at Cambridge Analytica, you look at the phone hacking and the collaboration between The Guardian and The New York Times. Joining up forces between media groups across international boundaries can also provide a degree of uh, greater resources and protection for sources whistleblowers. It doesn't guarantee it, but it does provide a level playing field when you're taking on uh, states or large institutions, and that's something that has become increasingly more common. Um, I've got a question, I think, at the back of the room there. Hi, uh, I'm Tanya. Uh, I'm a former senior producer at BBC Panorama. Um, and we know that investigative journalism is a very slow and expensive process. And there's a lot of misinformation as well, as Peter has talked about. So I have a bit of a big picture question for you, which is something that's troubled me for a long time. And what do you imagine is the future of investigative journalism? Um, well, I, I actually go back to, to what Gavin was saying. Um, I, actually, I do think that there is a strong future for it. Um, I think Gavin is right, you know, despite my, my, de my depressive comments, I think Gavin is right, that there is, there is a, a strong place for it. Um, I still am a bit sceptical, I'm, I'm concerned, not sceptical, I'm very concerned about how we pay for it. There's an appetite for it. Um, I think that we need to figure out new ways of financing good journalism for its own sake. Um, I think that there, we haven't really had serious conversations. The, the, the attitude of the government at the moment appears to be to simply let the market sort it out. And I don't think that's really good enough at the moment. We need to recognise that journalism plays a public, is, provides a public service and as such, we need to find ways of, of supporting it through public funding. That doesn't mean necessarily government funding. I still think the BBC model is valuable, not in the sense that we all need to be paying television licence fees, but that in the abstract, that, that, the, that there is a recognition that the BBC provides a public service and therefore we need to finance it from public money in a way that bypasses the Treasury um, that the, the government can't actually control. Um, and goes directly to support journalism to make it independent of either commercial or political pressures. As a, as a principle, that's something I think is really sound we need to think about. Once we have those kinds of debates, once we, we start talking seriously about what it is we expect uh, from journalism, what we need from journalism in a public, as a public good, then I think we can start to have a conversation about how we actually pay for it and get the kind of solid investigative journalism that you've been talking about. I'm going to give the final words to Yara. 
the uh, filmmaker on the panel. Uh, any sort of lasting thoughts for the audience in the last one minute, 20 seconds we have? Um, I actually just wanted to say that there is, a bit of, there is a very healthy investigative journalism unit at the ABC, which is publicly funded. Um, yes, there are constant threats of cuts to the ABC, but I don't think uh, investigative journalism is dead in Australia. Far from it. I think, I think there is a recognition that we need it now more than ever. Gavin, final words? Well, the more they cut our budgets, the more we invest in investigative journalism. I mean, that's, how, that's the approach I'm taking. So that means we've got to reduce our activity in other areas of what the ABC does. But we will not step back from ensuring that investigative journalism doesn't become more of a priority for us. And our journalists in this age are not deterred by all of the obstacles put in their way, that, you know, they're more tenacious, they're more hungry, they'll go harder. And so, you know, I, I think that is a message of hope, that we're not going to step back. And if the ABC in the end is half the size, it'll be twice as invested in investigative journalism. If there's any consolation, the fact that the government are throwing so many of these things in the direction of investigative journalism shows you that there's obviously, there's obviously information there to be disclosed in the wider public good, so it can only encourage more investigative journalism. I'd like to thank my wonderful panel and my audience and the AIDC for all their efforts this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you.